most profound thought that you have about the greatness of God? Have you thought about that? What? If you wanted to describe the greatness of God, where would you start? What amazes you about him? You know, reading um, an email from uh, Wayne Atchison, who's a Tuscaloosa guy, works for the Billy Graham Association in North Carolina. He's over the, the library there and does tours. So I'm on his email list, and he sent out a re reminder that Franklin Graham is going to every capital of every state in the United States before the November election to hold prayer meetings. If you did not know this, a week from this Thursday, April the 14th, he will be having a prayer meeting on the steps of the Alabama Capitol building. But in that email, there was a quote that I found very interesting. And I looked up who Abraham Joshua Heschel was. He died in 1972. He's a Polish-born Jewish rabbi. But listen to what he said. Our goal should be to live life in radical amazement. It's almost like furious, isn't it? Radical amazement. Get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. So how spiritual are you today? Here we are every week. One of the songs, Here I Am, Worshiping You. What stands out about the Lord that causes you to worship Him? Now we sing songs. We sing a lot of songs. But why sing songs about Him and why sing songs to Him? What is the purpose of singing our worship? seems like music and song is the way the soul expresses the deeper thoughts that we have and the deeper feelings. When I think about the Lord, how He saved me, how He raised me, how He filled me with the Holy Ghost, how He healed me to the uttermost. Now think about that song just for a moment. We're not doing a song examination today. All the things in that song have to do with the activity of God in your life. What he's done. But what about who he is? Not just what he's done in our life. Out of all the things that overwhelm you about God, is there one thing that just jumps off the chart and says, this is what amazes me about God? I think I'll ask 10 people here what, no, I'm not going to do that. But can I suggest something to you that amazes me? Now, there's a lot of things that amazes me about God. We're talking about the big picture today. You know, I, I have these philosophical moments laying in bed at night, and I sometimes will ask Brenda questions. She says, why do, why do you even think about that? I said, that makes my head hurt. I said, it's making my head hurt. She said, well, no, you shouldn't think about that. It's like, before time began, how did they measure time before that? Or if you can find the edge of the universe, 
What's on the other side of it? Isn't that wonderful? She says, you shouldn't think that way. But I want to tell you what amazes, some, one of the things that amazes me about God, and I want to suggest this to you today as part of what I'm going to share with you, is the timelessness of God. The infinity sign that we have. No beginning, no end. With God, no beginning, no end. Eternal, infinite. Nothing can confine him or measure him. And it's this timelessness that I want to talk to you today about. We're going to read from John chapter 8 here in just a moment. But let me ask you this. How old are you? Do y'all need the air conditioning on? Looks like some people about to pass out up here. Uh, I'll ask Ashley. How old are you? 42. 42? That's not really exactly accurate. Okay. <laughs> unless, unless your birthday is today. Look at Alvin. He's all over it. Could have come back there and asked him. So how old are you? Give you a moment. <laughs> Plus a few months. When was your birthday? July. So you got some calculating to do. Adding up the days, the months. You know, I'm, I'm a, a genealogical buff, and way back in the 1800s, Sometimes they didn't put the date of death. They put how long they lived. Anybody seen grave markers like that? My, my kid says to Brenda, with that, why does Daddy always have to stop at cemeteries when we come to Mississippi? But it's like so many months, so many years, so many months, so many weeks, so many days. Some of them had that kind of how long they lived. Well, I'm 65 years, five weeks, and five days old. Now, I could have put that differently. 65, one month, one week, and three days. But I like the 65, five, and five better. Well, see, the reason we think this way is that we are confined by time. And the, one of the most profound statements that Jesus makes has to do with his birthday has to do with his age. His age became an issue in John chapter 8. It's a great chapter. It starts off with an incredible moment of God's mercy. But we're going to drop down to verse 48 and pick it up there. One of the most profound statements that Jesus makes is in this section of Scripture. The last section of John 8. You won't find this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You won't find a lot of things that's in John that's not in them. You're looking at a book that was written somewhat 60 years after this happened. And John is going way back, 60 years, he's going way back and pulling these by the help of the Holy Spirit, these encounters. Now, we're going to pick it up because the Jews are already a little perturbed, the Jewish leaders. Let me put it that way. These are the, the established power brokers in the Jewish faith. 
So they, they answer him, says, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? He said, I am not possessed by a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. So I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is a judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaim, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets, and yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did all the prophets. Who do you think you are? And it doesn't say this, but I can think, he said, I'm glad you asked that. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. And if I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old. See, his age is coming into question. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Jesus said, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Twice, in verse 48 and in verse 52, they accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. They also call him a Samaritan, which is probably like the worst thing you could call a Jewish person because it really means a half-breed who doesn't belong in the covenant of God. So they call him demon-possessed, and they call him a Samaritan. Uh, listen, when one's argument is weak, you just attack the person, right? Kind of like a page out of our political system today. Earlier in this chapter, the integrity of Jesus' witness is brought into question. They are actually claiming that he's lying about what he's talking about. So his integrity, his character... And he really amps up the hostility in this passage in verse 51 when he says, I tell you, who, whoever obeys my word will never see death. That brought the second accusation. Now we know you're demon-possessed. You're talking about an intent. This is why I love John. I love this chapter. I, I could not go through John's gospel enough. Because this is intense, is it not? I mean, I mean, this is heavy stuff. If you're standing on the outside of this, you're thinking they're about to get into a fight. <laughs> this is about to be a free-for-all. Because they're red in the face bad, and they're calling him the worst things that they can call him. And then, in defending what he said, he makes a statement in verse 56, that just sends them over the edge. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He did see it. He saw it and was glad. And this is where they brought up his age. You're not even yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Let me just put this in the context. Abraham lived about 1,921 years before Jesus was born. Almost 2,000 years. And you can, you can understand the context that these people are hearing him and he's talking as though that he and Abraham are contemporaries. And they're bringing to the point that you're not even 50 years of age and, and you've seen Abraham and, and Jesus simply answers that. He, he predates himself before Abraham when he answers that. He says before Abraham was was in the past tense, right? What did he say? I am in the present. He doesn't just say he's a contemporary of Abraham. He says, I am before Abraham. And they knew exactly what he was meaning when he said that. The Son of God, before he descended into the womb of a teenage virgin in Nazareth named Mary, the Son of God was in operation in the plan of God all along. He visited Abraham. He was involved in the whole plan throughout the Old Testament. The Son of God is involved. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit are constantly involved in everything. How could Abraham see him? What we're dealing with here is the timelessness of the Son of God, the eternal nature. And I want you to think about this today when when we, when we are reading John 8, we're reading something that was written 60 years after it was said. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, do not record this. Neither do they record anything like the first chapter in John. You know how it begins, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. What? Did you hear that? All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Not only is it saying that he predates Abraham, but he is the living God who was operative in creation. And yet, they're calling him a Samaritan. Outside of the covenant of God, few statements carry the weight in the gospel of John, like John 20, 28. When Thomas sees Jesus and he renders five words, what were those five words? My Lord and my God. What? Think about what he was saying. Jesus is his God, not his Messiah. Jesus is on level with, he said, I recognize that you're deity. You're my God. But if you look at the, the actual words, there's seven words in the original language, and it goes like this. He says, ho kurios mu, M-O-U, which is the first person pronoun possessive, my. 
the Lord mine. Kai ho theos mu. And the God mine. You see what he's emphasizing? He's not emphasizing the my part. He's emphasizing who he is. His part is that he gets to attach himself to him. And I think sometimes we, we read a statement like uh, Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we might put the emphasis on the word I. But that's not the emphasis word. I can do all things through Christ. That statement means nothing. You can have all the determination that you want. You can try your best, your hardest, your greatest effort. And it won't bring about the results that you want. But he says, I can do all things through Christ. It's through Christ. And this is what Thomas is saying. Thomas was utterly and totally amazed at the resurrection of Jesus. But he went past the resurrection and he says, not only are you alive, you're my Lord. You have lordship over me and you're my God. You're the God over my life. I want to take you to Colossians chapter 1 because there's something connecting Colossians 1 and John 1. We're focusing on the big picture today. How great is our God? How great is our God? This is, I love Colossians. I don't know how many read Colossians, but it's a great book. And Colossians 1 just, it's, it's nuclear. If somebody wants to talk about energy, it's, it's a nuclear bomb of spirituality, especially when you get to where it transitions from 12, 13, and 14. I'm going to begin reading with verse 13. If you haven't, if you haven't dog-eared this place in your Bible and underlined some things, you need to get a pen out and you need to start working on Colossians 1. For he has rescued, now that he is a reference to God as Father, the Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his Son, his beloved Son, the Son that he loves. So the Father has rescued us and brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his Son, who is Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the invisible image is the is the image of the invisible god the firstborn over all creation and stop right there because here's where we're in our time sequence we see first as a matter of order right but this is a matter of preeminence of supremacy this is a mean that the son was created by the father this means they've eternally existed that way and that he has first place in this supremacy as the Son. It's hard for us to process this. But it says the Son is the image. The Son is the visible representation of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. And verses 16 and 17 are just out of sight. For in him all things were created. If you want to... An explanation of what he means by all things, you're about to get it. Okay, things in heaven and on earth. Visible things and invisible things. 
whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Son of God, incarnate in the person of Jesus, was in, was in full-blown creative work to bring this world that we live into existence. I can't, I can't be like Lou Giglio this morning and just kind of make you see the universe the way he helps you see it. But the Hubble spacecraft continues to let us know things that we have never seen before. That's out there. Billions and billions of stars. To me, the words of Genesis 1-1 are beautiful words. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? But in the Hebrew, it's just great. I can, I can say a little bit of Hebrew. It sounds southern, but I can say that God bara, that God out of nothing made the ha-shamayim. The shamayim is heavens, and ha-shamayim is the heavens. And when you see a Hebrew word with I am on the end, it's like our plural of ES. Heavens. That he made the heavens, meaning not only our atmosphere, but everything out there, God made it. But we're told in Scripture that the one out of the Godhead that was doing it was Jesus. And all things in him, all things were created, visible, invisible, all things. And not only that, in him, all things hold together. It's kind of like the writer of Hebrews when he says that God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spake in times past to, the, to our fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, the universe who being in the brightness of his glory and express image of his person and upholding all things by the power of his word, when he had made by himself, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than them. The whole point of the introduction is to Hebrews is that Jesus created all things and he holds all things. Can you say the greatness of God? How great is our God? He made everything. Now, there are other options for people to believe. Like, it just happened. An explosion. A big old bang. And debris went flying from that bang. And that's what Hubble is seeing. And they're saying they're not faith-based. But they've yet to describe how the material came for the explosion. What was the fuel? What was the catalyst to ignite the explosion? And where did the material come from for the explosion that would self-replicate itself in such a wonderful way? But we're told the greatness of God that the universe displays. And I was thinking about this the other day. When everybody's on their iPhones and iPads and in front of televisions, what, whatever happened about being outside at night? Well, Pastor, it's, it's hot out there. You can start sweating out there. 
But I was in a generation, you didn't have much to play with, so you just thought up something. And most of the time, you was outside. You weren't inside. If you was inside, you got told to do some chores, so you stayed outside. But on a clear night, the majesty of God on display, the greatness of God. Now, this is just scratching the surface. And like I said, this is just uh, for this morning, the bigger picture. Rich Mullins wrote a song, Our God is an awesome God. When he rolls up his sleeves, he's just not putting on the ritz. You know, he's kind of like Keith Green. He just had a way of expressing stuff. But he was trying, trying through music to give some kind of visual of the greatness of God. We sing, How Great Thou Art. Before this message, O oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the world, the worlds our hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul. You know, I, I want to go see the Grand Canyon at some point in my life. But Brendan and I hiked up to the top of Multnomah Falls at the Columbia River Gorge in Oregon. Anybody else been there? Eddie, you been there? This is what I remember saying to Brenda. I looked at her and, of course, we was trying to catch our breath. I said, when Lewis and Clark saw this, or whoever saw it, from the immigration of Europe, must have been spellbound by the view because it is nothing but breathtaking and you know what we do when we see something like that we take a picture and we didn't do selfies then we just took a picture and we get the we get the camera the film back and this is what we say it looks so much better in person <laughs> and that's just one little glimpse I think we had a song where it talked about, I just got a glimpse of God. Listen, you ought to be amazed every day you get up at the wonder and majesty of God. If you're not, you're living in a very small world. The world that's open to us is a great world. And it's all I can do not to go to part B today and preach next Sunday's message about how we bring that great world into our small world. But that's the next thing. Would you stand with me? I want Brandon and them to come back. Here's, here's what I want us to do. If you need a touch from God today, you need a healing or you need a breakthrough, I want you to step out from where you're, you're at and come and stand across. Do you believe that God can touch you today? You believe God can touch you. I believe he can. And I believe he will. Because he is a great God. Let's trust him. You need a healing. You need God to touch you. What a great God we serve. He has all the answers for you. If you want to stand here in place of someone that's not able to be here this morning, why don't we trust the greatness of God? to reach past the distance that's between us and them.
And while you're standing here, God touches them there. I believe that. 